This is the SciDev.net podcast for news and views on science and global development. This month we put a spotlight on the Ebola crisis. For an update on the research and the action taken so far to curb the epidemic, we'll be looking at the challenges of fast-tracking vaccines. These vaccines were given to us to, to, to try, in the clinical trials. And we took up the challenge knowing that at that point we were given a deadline of you're talking about six weeks for something that probably takes about six months to do. We'll hear about the lessons that researchers in the field of neglected diseases have learned from the Ebola outbreak and how this will help them better prepare in case of future emergencies. We'll then speak with a Nigerian health consultant who is helping make a difference through social media. Um, during the outbreak in Nigeria, we, we were able to bridge the large gap between the governments the international development community and um, the policymakers. And finally, we'll discover how good design can make field doctors' life much easier. We, we created this cocoon method where you would remove the, the suit in the manner you can imagine a, a butterfly emerging from the top of a cocoon. Welcome to the SciDev.net podcast. So today, how scientists have been working on the ground and in the lab to tackle the biggest Ebola crisis ever recorded. With over 22,000 cases across Guinea, Liberia and Sierra Leone and almost 8,800 victims. Last August, the World Health Organization declared the outbreak a public health emergency of international concern. With the support of an international consortium of scientific institutions, the WHO moved to fast-track clinical trials of two available candidate Ebola vaccines. Research centres such as the Jenner Institute in Oxford in the UK have taken up the challenge. SciDev.net multimedia producer Lou Del Bello is in the studio to tell us more. Hi John, I wanted to know more about how vaccines are made and in particular how scientists worldwide are responding to the need of fast-tracking the vaccine development, so to make them available faster in the face of the epidemic. I spoke with Egeruan Bambatunde Himokwede. He's a vaccinologist who works at the Jenner Institute in Oxford, and the Jenner Institute took part in an international effort to fast-track the trial of a new vaccine developed in the United States by the pharmaceutical company GSK, and the U.S. National Institute of Health. So how does it work? I mean, how do they coordinate the research and trial of the vaccine? Well, the vaccine has been developed by research partners in the U.S. Then they shipped it to the U.K. to test that it's safe for people and elicit an immune response. But actually, the tricky bit is not a trial itself. It's the bureaucracy that slows down the process. And here's what Babatunde told me. This vaccines were given to us to, to, to try in the clinical trials. We first got a call in, on the 7th of August 2013 that we needed to do fast-track clinical trials on Ebola uh, vaccines that have been developed by GSK and NIH. And we took up the challenge knowing that at that point we were given a deadline of probably about the middle of September to commence first vaccinations. So from 7th of August, you're talking about six weeks for something that probably takes about six months to do. 
He also explained the main preliminary step needed to get the ball rolling. This is a, probably a simple clinical trial that involves uh, planning, that's making a call for volunteers, um, uh, talking to the volunteers and seeing which ones are eligible, um, having them come in uh, to sign informed consents. Once you get this approval, you cannot have any interventions or anything done on the volunteer until you have regulatory authority approvals. So when, this is, when, when you get these approvals, then you call in the volunteers, you screen them, do all the relevant tests that is required, check the inclusion and exclusion criteria, then you can now enroll them into the study and fix the date for their first vaccinations. And Lou, once the volunteers are recruited, what's the trial procedure after that? So first, the researchers need to take a sample of blood for their baseline to compare the blood of each patient before and after the trial. You're, you're looking, if you're looking at immune responses to a vaccine, you want to know what, what kind of immune responses that you might elicit when you look at the, the before giving the vaccine and after you're giving the vaccine. So that's, that's when you, you're able to tell how, how, what level of immune responses you get after vaccination, before and after vaccination. Then the vaccine is administered and the researchers can observe the first results in just a few months. And then you vaccinate, you give them diary cards where they fill in adverse events or what you call side effects that may occur with vaccination, whether they had fever after vaccination, they're able to measure the temperature and record it, whether they had any vomiting, whether they had any uh, headaches, whether they had any pain at the site of vaccination and things. And of course, how long this takes to resolve. But Lou, I know the way vaccines generally work is by administering a dose of weakened or killed virus to the patients. In the case of Ebola, wouldn't this be dangerous for the volunteers taking part in the trial? Well, that's what I thought too. So I put the question to Barbatunde, who explained that this particular vaccine is not based on the Ebola virus, but on a single protein from the virus, which is combined with an innocuous vector. In simple terms, it's a chimp adenovirus, it's a chimpanzee adenovirus, uh, which has been used in other malaria in vaccines like malaria, HIV and TB. And in this case, it's chimp adenovirus 3, which is fused to glycoprotein from the Ebola virus, not the virus itself. No. So what's next after the trial at the Jenner Institute? Well, I put that to Barbatunde, and he shed some light on the next steps. Yeah, the next ones would be the difficult efficacy trials. Uh, that is to see if the vaccine protects against, against uh, Ebola. You will, uh, in this case, design, like I said, it's a different design. Here you'll be looking at uh, giving vaccines to the uh, volunteers and then, and then finding out if the vaccine protects against uh, the disease in an area where you don't have, where you don't have the disease. You can have trial done there and then when you go on to the phase three trials those are phase two trials when you go on to phase three trials you're looking at testing the vaccine in an area where the uh, the disease is prevalent well that was Egerwan Babatunde Imakowede talking to Ludo Balio about Ebola vaccine trials stay with us to learn more about the landscape of neglected diseases later in the podcast
This is the SciDev.net podcast where we put science at the heart of global development. Well, earlier we saw how researchers in the UK are helping fast-track the Ebola vaccine. Now Imogen Mathers joins me in the studio to tell us more about the research landscape in the field of global health and neglected diseases and the impact of Ebola on shaping future priorities. Hello there, Imogen. Hello, John. So Ebola and global health research. Tell us more, Imogen. It's a big field, isn't it? It is indeed. And I've recently been speaking to the founders of Uh, something called the UK University Global Health Research League Table, which is a new public index that ranks UK research universities according to the amount of money that they spend on global health, so health um, in developing countries and low- and middle-income countries, and also on neglected diseases. So this obviously covers um, research funding for infectious diseases like Ebola. And I spoke to Diz Gotham, who is the co-creator of the League Table, about the project. The UK University Global Health Research League Table has been collecting data for a year and a half, and what the League Table shows us is how committed universities are to work in global health, and we look at this in various ways. Uh, So the League Table shows us what proportion of their total medical research funding they're investing in these areas. We also look at how many publications they're putting out in these areas. And also, very importantly, we're looking at what measures they're taking to make sure that their research is accessible in developing countries. The League Table has two sections, which we call Innovation and Access. So we look at research done uh, in this country and provisions to make that research accessible. So I'll I'll give some examples of what we call metrics. So those are uh, ways in which we measure these aspects of global health. Some are purely numerical, so we look at what percentage of the total medical research funding in a two-year time frame was devoted to neglected diseases. We don't only look at neglected tropical diseases, we actually make a point of calling them neglected diseases. Uh, And and the difference here is that it also includes um, neglected aspects of HIV, malaria, and and TB. for example, in HIV, a neglected area is, is making cheaper diagnostics in, in a lot of areas, talking about making more heat-stable vaccines is, is, is an issue. Um, so, so we make sure that we look at things which are not necessarily tropical but are neglected areas of research. So what have they found? Well, according to the League Table, the amount of funding spent on the UK on two issues, so health in lower middle-income countries, and also separately the amount of funding they spend on neglected disease research is extremely low. It's around 2% for global health and it's 1.7% for neglected diseases. And this is what Diz told me about this. So if I talk about the innovation section, what we found was that the average amount that a top research university in the UK spends on neglected disease research is only 1.7% of their total medical research funding which is about five to six times less than the actual global burden of these diseases. So firstly, we see this very low number, 1.7% of total medical research funding being spent on neglected diseases. But we also see that 78% of all neglected disease research done in UK universities happens in uh, in five top universities. So it's, it's a very siloed area where only a few elite universities are doing the brunt of the work. 
So the most, the most is actually done by the University of Oxford. The second one is the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. A very close fourth is Imperial College London. Uh, the fourth top university is UCL in neglected disease research and then Liverpool. So this is just looking at funding and not research output. Why is uh, 78% of all neglected disease research being done at these five universities? So I think in part it's because traditionally neglected disease research happens at large centers devoted to this and you have to be an elite university to have set up a center like this perhaps. And another reason or kind of the, the reason I find more more interesting or the more interesting explanation is that I think possibly you need you need to be a confident university to do neglected disease research. This is traditionally an area uh, which does not bring a lot of profits, which is why you see the pharmaceutical sector doing very little research in the area. Um, so you have to be a large university to say we are actually going to step up to this to this responsibility and we are actually going to research something now which is by definition neglected. And did he have any thoughts on how all this might affect responses to disease outbreaks like Ebola? Yeah, he had some really interesting things to say about um, how the Ebola epidemic might affect the research landscape for global health. Um, but he also stressed that he really thinks global health funding shouldn't merely be reactive and respond to outbreaks as and when they occur. Um, and so he criticised this idea that there should be a surge in funding when this happens. But instead, he thinks they should really try and develop a more robust, sustained funding and a more rationally developed response to, to neglected areas of global health. So I think Ebola definitely will re-energize neglected disease research and make people see that this is an important area. But at the same time, in the global health world, there's a, there's a number of skepticisms about this. One is really that we, we hope more research won't come just because the Western world feels threatened. Another, another point is that this, this tradition of, of seeing uh, surges in research funding and, and other endeavors in reaction to large dramatic events is again something that I, I personally am not very keen on. We would really be hoping more for a larger and more, more rationally developed response to neglected areas in, in general. Do you think that has been a lesson, though, from this Ebola crisis, that people are realising that there needs to be a more sustained sustained funding and better attention and building these stronger frameworks so that when another disease crisis might arise, the frameworks are in place? Yeah, I, th I think that's definitely a, a lesson from this crisis. If, if you are someone who feels that the rich countries in the world with excellent research institutions um, and quite a lot of knowledge in, in healthcare should be responding to these problems, then you would really be hoping for a, a comprehensive engagement in making sure that we have a, a basis to, to work on this from. So, so you would hope that there's more funding in general in neglected diseases because we, we don't know what the next outbreak will be and of what. And you would want this to be a general commitment, so a, a mission statement, as it were, by by everyone engaged in research and everyone funding research and, and healthcare initiatives. This may have changed now, but you know, a couple months ago I read an incredible statistic that two-thirds of Ebola treatment is being done by doctors of borders. And that tells you that there may be money to spend, but there is no standing workforce. There's no one at the ready 
in terms of, of uh, public commitments, government commitments to deal with large health crises. And definitely in response to Ebola, there have been many calls to really develop a global health workforce um, to deal with future problems like this. Well, that was Imogen Mathers talking to Diz Gotham about neglected disease and Ebola. Well, stay with us to learn how good design can improve the work of health operators in Ebola-stricken countries. This is the SciDevNet podcast for news and views on science and global development. Now, in the fight against Ebola, the international community has really got together with unprecedented drive, from scientists working in the lab to policymakers facilitating the fast-tracking of fundraising and deployment of emergency measures to workers on the front line of the outbreak. Now designers are chipping in with the prototype for an advanced protective suit for healthcare workers who treat Ebola patients. Designers at the John Hopkins University of Baltimore in the United States won an award launched by USAID to help develop technical innovations to fight Ebola and support their deployment in the field. Reporter Anand Jagatia investigated and sent us this report. The Ebola virus is transmitted through direct contact with the bodily fluids of infected patients. For healthcare workers, their personal protection equipment, or PPE, is their last line of defence against the disease. Professor Yusuf Yazdi of John Hopkins University explains. Ebola is a very um, challenging infectious disease situation in that the viral particles, the number of viral particles in droplets of the bodily fluid is very high, highly contagious, and various types of bodily fluids are, are surrounding the patient and the environment. So it's critical that there's absolutely no exposure of the skin to any of these viral particles or any of these bodily fluids. And the people on the front lines taking care of these patients are incredibly brave and, um, and self-sacrificing to, to do so. John Hopkins, in partnership with a non-profit called Japigo, recently brought together a team of students, academics, experts and healthcare workers at a weekend-long hackathon event to try and come up with an improved version of the protection equipment currently being issued to workers. What we've been told by people who use the suits in the field is that they're incredibly hot and uncomfortable. The second thing is the removal process itself is very complicated because you have to be very, very cautious about not getting the contaminated surface touching the lower level you know, surfaces that are clean underneath, not getting contaminated material on your skin. Extreme caution and you know, meticulous care has to be taken. And anytime you have a complex set of instructions you have to follow, there's always chance for a mistake. And in this particular disease condition, a mistake could be deadly. There's also other mi- more minor issues. For example, the appearance is somewhat frightening which can have a big effect on the other dimensions of care. Are people going to be afraid to come to get care in the right place because they're concerned about these white uh, aliens, you know, that are covered from head to toe in the white uh, Tyvek and, and their faces covered, they can't see their mouth, and it's very scary. The prototype displays a range of new features that will work to solve some of these problems and can be implemented into the suits that are currently in production. We, we created this cocoon method where you would remove the, the suit in the manner you can imagine a, a butterfly emerging from the top of the cocoon. The back kind of just tears open. The zipper is designed to, when you, when you pull on a release, 
kind of like a ripcord on a, on a parachute, imagine that. You pull on that, the zipper kind of is disengaged and it falls open. At the same time, you have tabs on your attached to your hand area. The tabs are removed and placed on the floor. And when you step on them, you get a tugging on your end of your sleeve and it pulls the whole suit forward. The zipper in the back under the tension pulls apart and the whole suit falls down in front of you and uh, in one step, and that takes like 20 seconds. This new removal technique is a huge improvement on the original method, which requires two people working together and takes around 20 minutes to safely remove a single suit. Other solutions include colour coding for the inside and outside areas of the suit to prevent cross-contamination, as well as moving the breathing mask to the top of the head and installing a large clear panel over the face to make the workers look less intimidating. As well as this, some of the most important enhancements to the suit are those involved in keeping the wearer cooler for longer. One of the most promising ones is a technology that's been developed here by a scientist, a cardiologist at Johns Hopkins, around putting dry, desiccated air into um, the body. So when you, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of working in a very humid place, when you finally get a break from the humidity and go into some place with air conditioning, it's not necessarily the coldness which calms you down and, and relieves your heat stress. It's the dryness of the air. Um, that's one element of it. And that's done very inexpensively using desiccant. So if you just uh, take the normal system in places where people are using you know, forced air, like uh, they call these devices pappers, when people are using these positive air pressure um, devices, all they would have to do is add in a desiccant stage, which is just a canister of desiccant, basically, and it would provide a huge degree of comfort. But in places where they're not using PAPRs, there's also other more passive elements to the cooling. Um, the fact that the exhaled air is directed out of the suit and away from the face um, is really important because when you're exhaling air, it's hot and humid. Other elements involve um, cooling channels throughout the suit. Another is use of these high-performance uh, sportswear that are designed to keep athletes cool. These cooling technologies could allow caregivers to work for up to twice as long before having to remove their suits due to overheating. We've been told by people in the field that 45 minutes to an hour is about it. So if you double that, that means that half as many doffing uh, and donning procedures need to be done, which means you've, you've cut in half the risk associated with doffing and donning the garments, which is a major part of the risk, which also means you've cut in half the cost of the suits, uh, the usage of the suit, because you're using half as many. Um, you're saving a lot of time because each time, each cycle takes a lot of time. So even if the suit costs, let's say, 20% more than the existing product, it will still be um, cost-effective because you'd need less of them. The prototype has been awarded funding from the US Agency for International Development as part of a grand challenge to produce innovations which can help to combat the Ebola outbreak. The funding will allow the suit prototype to move from the concept to production phase and provide workers in affected areas with better protection against infection. So we're working with a major manufacturer and we would like to add the features that we have developed through our design challenge into their product line in a very rapid manner so that they'll be in the field within a couple of months. And then some of the more complex things may take a few more months after that. The thing is that 
people and governments focus a lot of attention during a crisis. Um, the crisis may go away, but you know there's going to be another crisis, unfortunately. And uh, and what we're we're thinking about the short term in order to get some of these features to the field quickly, but we're also thinking about the long term to make sure that the world is ready with better equipment for the next crisis. That was Anand Jagatia speaking with Professor Yusuf Yazdi at John Hopkins University about the award-winning improved protective suit for Ebola healthcare workers. And if some doctors are working in the field to treat patients, in West Africa others are using social media to build what they call health literacy among the population. Stay with us to learn more later in the podcast. listening to the SciDev.net podcast where we're taking stock of the global Ebola response and looking at what's next in the strive for containing the current and future outbreaks. Back in the studio with me is Lou Del Bello who spoke with a health entrepreneur who's dedicated his life to health literacy as a way to empower people in the face of epidemics. Lou, tell us more. Hi John. So it all started during my research I came across a Twitter account called Ebola Alert. Ebola Alert doesn't just provide generic information about Ebola, but it's a structured service with daily dispatches and even question times with experts, where Twitter users can ask questions using the hashtag EbolaChat. So I decided to get in touch with the man behind Ebola Alert, Lawal Bakare. Here's what he said. My belief is that if we increase the health literacy, and empowerment of communities and utilization of care, I believe that all of these can help us to reduce disease burdens in Africa. Ebola Alert currently serves as the glue for command and control during Ebola outbreaks. Um, during the outbreak in Nigeria, we, we were able to bridge the large gap between the governments, the international development community, and um, the policymakers and the general population. So general population needed information to work with. Government, international development agencies had a lot of information to share, but we needed to bridge the gap, and that was what we played out as Ebola Alert. Lou, how did Lawal make sure that Ebola Alert would stand out as authoritative and trustworthy amongst all the many, many internet voices that are speaking about Ebola? Well, very simple. They decided to work in association with a trusted institution. So what we did for that was to plug the Twitter handle into the Ebola Emergency Operation Center that was founded by the Nigerian Center for Disease Control in Lagos. So with that, we created a handle which was not just sharing information, but was sharing effectual and actionable information from the authorities. So when we, when we created that, we now moved on to say, okay, what are the other things we could add? So we added Ebola news, which is every morning we, we crawl the internet through Google Alert and other technologies to get in, you know, top news on Ebola. So first thing in the morning in Nigeria, which is between 7 a.m. and 8 a.m., we share this information with our followers. In addition to that, we use Twitter for information surveillance. So information surveillance in the sense that while we might not be able to pick biologic surveillance, which is through body temperature changes and all of that, if there is a rumor or there is a positive feedback of information 
from the community or colleagues who are healthcare experts. We pick this information and we can easily report it to those who are in charge of um, Ebola containment. And other than spreading awareness about the disease, Ebola Alert also offers an important service when it comes to potentially dangerous rumors. So during the outbreak, there was a rumor that there was Ebola in the northern, in northern Nigeria. Now, let me give you a, a, a kind of background into what rumors can do. So way back in 2001 in Nigeria, there was a massive um, um, accident in the army barrack of Nigeria where we had um, the artillery unit. So whatever happened as an accident, there was a lot of explosion from the back. And because people felt that this, people didn't know where the explosion was coming from, so they had to run for their lives. Now, behind where people were running from was a massive canal, and people felt that they could cross the canal. In the process of trying to cross the canal, Nigeria lost 600 lives to that exercise. So that is what rumor can lead to. So during the Ebola outbreak, there was a rumor that there was Ebola in northern Nigeria. And before that, also, we had a rumor of salt, which everybody was aware of. So we needed to make sure that we control rumors fast. But what we, what we were doing was that we, we caught the rumor. As it went on Twitter, we caught it immediately. And we went back to the health system because we had close relationship with Nigerian Center, Disease, Center for Disease Control. So through the Nigerian Center for Disease Control, we were able to reach the state epidemiologist and we found out that it was in Ebola that was there that a student was just ill and through that we were able to communicate back to the public and that was able to help people to understand that it was in Ebola. What could have happened? People could have panicked the way you had panicked in other parts of the world when there is a case or a rumour of an outbreak of Ebola. So far, all very promising. And I see that Ebola Alert has almost 71,000 followers. It's a significant audience, isn't it? It is. Um, but what will happen once the outbreak is curbed in West Africa? Will they be able to capitalise on the lesson learnt during the emergency, do you think? Well, I asked Lawal how they are planning to use social media for health empowerment in the future. We will be looking at um, ability to source antecedents of diseases. So antecedents of diseases might seem like things which will vary from understanding behavior patterns of communities, their cultures, and um, their practices. Now, all of these things we can easily crowdsource via social media. We can easily crowdsource via a system that allows beyond that allows for communication beyond our English and French. So that way, we'll be able to start mapping factors that might influence diseases. If we can map this early, it can inform us of disease uh, practices, of, of practices that we need to intervene on. So instead of us to wait to have a case of Ebola, we might quickly track that a community has poor level of hygiene. And we understand that when this community has poor hygiene, the chances are there that a simple disease like Ebola when it enters such community, it will spread fast because Ebola is actually a disease that is actually a weak virus. But if your system, if you lack hygiene, you might not be able to control it in its tracks. 
um, the other thing that we find out is the utilization of care patterns. So basically, we are looking at being able to track factors that are not disease core, but that have a strong link into, you know, leading to disease outbreaks. So lack of health systems, status of health systems, financing, how much financings are there. And then when we engage colleagues through what we do, like chats and so on and so on, through chats with colleagues, we'll be able to see how we would crowdsource this information from experts that are on ground. So these are the things that we are looking at. I've always been a bit wary about the power of social media in epidemiology because it's always presented in a very simplistic way. But I have to say I was fascinated by the idea of using it to learn more about behaviours and keep in touch with experts in a specific field in a more dynamic and responsive manner. Well, Lou, thanks for talking with Lawal Bakare of Ebola Alert. Sounds fascinating. Well, that's all for this month. So from me, John Escombe, and all of the SciDev.net team here in London, stay connected with us for more news and views on global development. Until next time, it's goodbye. Bye-bye.